with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast, The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I'm here with Kara Salaya, filling in for Carrie Alavelt, who is out sick this week, which is unfortunate because, not because you're on, Kara. <laughs> That's not what's unfortunate. <laughs> what's unfortunate is that we're going to be talking about Michigan, and Carrie is a Michigander and a proud one at that. And so uh, we won't have a local touch, but I think we're pretty well versed in Michigan because it has been so incredibly important in just about any election that I can remember. Now, Arizona and Georgia's big 2020 flips have gotten a lot of attention, and we've talked about those two states at length on this show. They were very, very dramatic. Democrats turned out over half a million new voters in both those states uh, to narrowly overtake Donald Trump. Those states deserve all that attention, of course, and we're going to give them more attention in the months ahead. But they weren't the only states to flip based on dramatic Democratic gains. Today on Daily Coast of Brief, we'll be looking more closely at, like I said, Michigan. In 2016, Trump got 2.3 million votes, barely beat out Hillary Clinton by 10,704 votes. Then in 2020, he added 370,000 more votes, which is 16% increase. In a normal political year, you win a state, you add 16% to that winning margin, you're probably going to win back-to-back victories. But 2020 was not a normal year, and Joe Biden got an additional 535,000 votes to win by a narrow in the big you know, picture, but it still was a convincing 150,000 vote victory, made it a lot harder for Trump to try and steal that state the way he tried in Arizona and Georgia. So yes, Donald Trump motivated Democrats to turn out in larger numbers, but you don't get over half a million new votes by sitting on your ass and praying for victory. Today, we will talk to Art Reyes of We the People of Michigan about the work they've done to organize their community on the ground. He will be joined by one of his grassroots organizers, Kamau Clark, and we will discuss how Democrats managed such a dramatic turnaround in 2020 and how 2022 is shaping up. And 2022 is incredibly important nationally, but in Michigan as well. The state's Democratic governor and secretary of state are up for re-election, and we just saw how important holding those offices are for uh, matters of election integrity. Furthermore, both chambers of the legislature are narrowly held by Republicans. Depending on turnout and what those legislative maps look like, either party could end up with a trifecta. 2024 is in serious jeopardy if we end up on the losing end. Kara, thank you so much for joining us on short notice. You have a history. In fact, you started politics by doing underground organizing. Is that true? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. I started in the central Florida area. I grew up in Broward County, so politics is sort of just embedded in me. Uh, I remember the 2000 election as a 10-year-old, um, which is telling of my age. But I also, when I went to undergrad, um, it was I started college in 2008, and I was there through 2012, Obama's re-election, and I was part of UCF's like, College Democrats and all of the underground work there. We did a lot of really impactful work as students. So I was turning in UCF is the biggest, I believe, school in the country right now with 60,000 students. And we turned, as student organizers, our campus into a polling site because we didn't used to have a polling site on campus. And actually last year uh, for the election, UCF, my alma mater, had a 100% turnout at that polling site, which is a huge thing for Florida. I've also gone and worked yeah. In fact, it was so the how that metric is done is a little tricky because it's not like every single person who was. Yeah, it was impressive it. enough. You said 100%. That was impressive. <laughs> it is. That's what was reported. It was 100%. Uh, so, you know, it, it, that also I, I've come on the, on the on the podcast many times to talk about the youth vote and how it can turn out. And it did turn out last time. And that is a lot of on the ground organizing. I also was involved in John Ossoff's uh, congressional race. So we did a lot of on the ground organizing there that then led on and continued the coalition building that happened for his eventual Senate win. And it was because those Not folks- to mention Lucy McBath in that very district. Yes, exactly. the foundation that she then built upon to win that House seat. Exactly. And I think that uh, Senator Ossoff really got the respect of folks in Georgia because he could have gone and, and run for president because he had that sort of like national visibility. And instead, he's, he stayed in Georgia. And I mean, I'm biased because I used to be part of that uh, that campaign, but he stayed in Georgia and he he followed the, the black women and the many people of color organizers on the ground and built that coalition from the ground up. It wasn't just throwing it wasn't just the money that was thrown at his campaign. It was much more important to have this massive network of volunteers and people knocking on doors and really turning it from the inside out into uh, a, an impressive field operation. So we have a sort of ultimate agenda in what is now shaping up to be this se- series on 2022 electoral battle- battlegrounds. We start with Virginia last week which really is a 2021 battleground because that election is three weeks away. Yeah. But we will be focusing on a lot of these battleground states in the weeks and months ahead. And our ulterior motive is to get people to donate to grassroots organizations that are doing this work on the ground. It is the best bang for the buck money you can spend. Everybody wants to send it to like, the candidates. They will, they will mostly piss that money away on television ads. They will have the money they need to build their organization. So it's all just excess TV ads. doesn't really convince anybody to vote. It's literally wasted money. Every dollar you use on on-the-ground organizers is going to be used on on-the-ground organizers that are actually, uh, at this stage of the game, registering voters, registering new voters. Because that's what the other side's doing right now. We need to register new voters. Then they will then identify, turn out, message. They will do the things they need to do to get them to turn out and vote next November. But the real foundational work is being done now, which is why we're talking about this topic right now, a year, over a year ahead of this election. So we want you guys to donate to these organizations that are doing this kind of work. And that's why we want to feature it. And Kara, you said you have some some 
Do you have some numbers data on just how important a good field program can be? Uh, I mean, the numbers are vary a lot there, uh, but, but I've heard everything from five to 10% is how much a good field can like up the turnout a good field, but that might be just within the specific campaigns. I will say this, there are a lot of numbers. Georgia is the place to study from the most recent election because a lot of, I, I care a lot about Latino turnout. We're both Latinos right now uh, co-hosting the show and Georgia Many There was a, a specific organization that literally reached out to every Latino registered in the state of Georgia. And the majority of those folks had never been reached out to by a, any effort in an election before. And it turned out massively well for Georgia. Obviously, it, it played out. And so what's also important in what you're saying here and how we need to raise the money for these specific organizations is that the niche organizations have an understanding of what specifically they are targeting. We also had someone who worked very deeply with the AAPI community in Georgia in the past episode of The Brief and how they were able to mobilize uh, the Asian American community, which is such a vast community in and of itself, in many individual ways as well. So what a lot of campaigns do with their money, as you said, is that they kind of do just piss it away on, on ads. But not only that, they're trying to hit as many people as possible. So it's not as individualized as these organizations who are on the ground are able to do. And I mean, for me personally, when someone calls me and talks to me about the very specific issues about my very specific community, I'm much more likely to pay attention. Right. So we're going to have our guests joining us in a few guests joining us in a few minutes. So let me sort of set the table a little bit about Michigan. Talk a little bit about Michigan. I got some some numbers here. In 2016, Trump won by 10,000 votes. He beat, he beat Hillary Clinton 47.25% to 47.03%. That one hurt. <laughs> I'm, I'm never, it's never going to be, it's always going to be too soon to talk about 2016. He added, like I said in the intro, he added 370,000 more votes. And, and that in itself is a bit of a gut punch because we all thought like, oh, people saw Donald Trump. They're going to, they can't possibly want to vote for him. He inspired even more people to turn out and vote. The difference of course was that Biden got 535,000 more votes. And so he was able to win by a relatively comfortable 154,000 votes. It's still only about 3% in the uh, less 2.8% uh, was the, was the margin. So it was still a tight margin, but it took a monumental effort to get over half a million new voters. Now, next year is important in Michigan because we have Gretchen Whitmer, who has been in the news a lot because conservatives, there was literally a plot to assassinate her, to at least to, to kidnap her. And so she has been sort of on the Trump firing line for, for uh, COVID mitigation reasons. And so holding the line in that governorship is going to be important because having a governorship refuse attempts to subjugate to to uh, overturn elections is going to be important. The same with the Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, another Democratic incumbent. Having those positions are critical. We saw how important that was in Arizona, where a Democrat, uh, Katie uh, Hobbs, was able to push back against Trumpian efforts to overturn the election. And even in Georgia, where there was a Republican secretary of state, he held the line, but it could have gone the other way. It could have gone the other way. So 
it is that tenuous. Our democracy right now depends on us having Democratic elected officials making sure that Republicans can't try to steal the election. Currently, the state Senate is 20 seats Republican, 16 seats Democrat. In the House, it's 58-52 Republican. Those are on a knife's edge. We don't know what the new maps are going to look like. We're going to be talking to Art about those in a little bit to see if he has any insight. Michigan has an independent commission drawing the boundaries, so it'll be interesting to see if he has any information on that. But regardless, odds are pretty good that the state legislature is going to be in play. And again, all we have to do is look to Texas in Arizona, in Georgia, where state legislatures are literally taking away people's rights to vote. That's how important winning that state legislature is. You compare that to state legislatures in Arizona, Washington, California, Colorado, where actually they've been making it easier for people to vote. So that is sort of the lay of the land in an incredibly uh, tight 50-50 State And it's a state full of, of inequities. You know, you have Flint and uh, dealing with the issues that Flint has been, such as their water. Uh, you have Republican suburbs that are trending blue, like in many places around the country. You have Detroit, which is heavily African-American, and it's a vote that is very fickle and difficult to turn out. It didn't vote in large numbers in 2016. It actually turned out in 2020. That was a big part of the difference. But also, Republicans had governorship and they had a state legislature that made it harder for people in Michigan to vote in 2016. This is all part of a Republican strategy. So we are in 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 a sort of a place where, where organizing cannot stop happening Clearly, the other side is all we are is one bad turnout election away from, uh, you know, from from catastrophe. Yeah. I I also want to say, because I've been learning about um, the Great Lakes region a lot recently, my partner works in water restoration work. uh, And so for for NOAA. So I'm constantly just concerned about the water situation, or at least my home is. And. I wasn't aware that so many of these state legislatures actually control what happens to the water supply in these like massive regions of water in our country. So it's very easy for we get called, you know, what is it like uh, coastal elites to think about these states in in just sort of like fragments. I, I think that more of the southern states are prone to that, that we're just sort of like, ah, it's, you know, red America or whatever. But this has a huge effect on things as basic as the water supply in the United States. So it's unbelievably important. Also, folks who feel like Washington, D.C. doesn't represent them, these midterm elections are so vital for the state legislatures, like you said, because this is things that really impact folks on a day-to-day basis in their home, that they can go to their state legislature much more easily than they could go to Washington, D.C., and really raise hell, which we support. <laughs> At least I do. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit of a balancing act because, you know, we're talking to a national audience and we're trying to get people to, you know, to donate to organizations like We the People in Michigan. And so if you focus too much on the, the actual meat of what a state legislature does, which is work on state issues, maybe not that important for people in other states, Right. That's why you talk about the impact it has on federal elections and election integrity and the right, right. to vote and those things. But I also don't want to lose the fact that state uh, legislation actually matters. 
I mean, we're seeing how it matters because in Texas, we just saw abortion effectively outlawed. And that actually, I think, has an impact on all of us because it, it rallies the right. It gives fuel to, to, to other states to follow suit. Yeah, it gives uh, legal it, precedent. Legal precedent. It gives the Supreme Court chances to chip away at rights. And right now, obviously, we have a 6-3 Supreme Court. So they are taking every opportunity. And we just saw the docket for this session. It's, it's God's guns and, and abortion, right? It's, they are doing everything they can. So the battle is now at that state legislature. And Kara, both our guests are here. So I think we should bring them on. Let's Our do it. Ray is, is the executive director of We the People Michigan. And Kamau uh, Clark, I believe, yep, Kamau Clark is an organizer for We the People. And thank you so much for joining us, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, at the beginning of the show, guys, we talked about how, how you know, Donald Trump barely won. Michigan in 2016 by 10,000 votes and change. And, and then he adds 330,000 new votes, 370,000 new votes, right? Like, well, like how can he possibly not win with a 16% increase in his vote turnout? Yet Biden got 535,000 more votes. And that was, that was the difference, right? I'm going to give you guys a chance to talk about, to take some of your, some of the credit for that 535,000, like what did Democrats do and allied organizations and what did you guys do to boost that Democratic turnout by over half a million people? Yeah, no, thanks so much, Marcos. It's great to be here with you both. And, I, you know, I think the story of 2020 is uh, an incredibly important one in, in Michigan. Like you said, 2016 was a different story. But look, in 2020, there's a few things that were happening that I think are really important. One, in 2018, we passed uh, uh, a ballot initiative that expanded voting rights in the state, something that Republicans right now are working to roll back and take away. So voting was much more accessible to a much broader set of folks than it had been historically. The other thing that I think we saw happening was that there was a movement afoot in many places across the country, and it was very, very clear in Michigan. Um, What we saw, I think, if we Take, our, take us back to a moment, uh, April 30th uh, in 2020. I just want to draw a split screen of what was happening there. This is the day that we saw white nationalists storming the Capitol uh, in the state uh, with, with arms. And that same day, we were actually had another gathering that 21,000 people came to that we hosted with a number of other organizations across the state fighting back on what our communities needed uh, around COVID. And you see this split between angry, visceral, white nationalists with arms storming our capital, juxtaposed with a multiracial gathering from every single corner of the state of people talking about what our communities deserve and what we're willing to fight for. And we watched this happen across the state over the year after George Floyd was murdered, pouring into the streets uh, in defense of black lives. We saw this happening around people in mutual aid efforts, taking care of communities during COVID. Uh, We saw over and over and over again, our communities showing up for each other. And so when people went out to vote, they were not just kind of out there voting for a candidate. They were voting 
for their neighbors who they watched struggle through COVID. They were they were voting to end state violence against Black folks. They were voting saying that water is not a com- commodity; it's a human right, which we know in Michigan is really critical. They were voting saying no human being is illegal, and we saw our people show up in droves not only to devote but to defend the election as it happened. And I think you know the the last thing I I, I want to just mention just for for everybody that that tunes into your show. It's a really critical story in Michigan of our democracy really teetering on the edge when the president, the highest office in the land at the time, Donald Trump, was calling and putting pressure on local officials to essentially overthrow the results of the election. And he was unable to do that, not because uh, of, of the miracles of the institutions or because people just decided they were going to do the right thing. He failed in that prospect because a mass of multiracial working class people, black, brown, white, native and newcomer, came together every single day for months preparing for that moment. And when we saw them showing up to intimidate election workers at TCF that the nation saw, when we had people showing up to some of our rallies with arms, what we had was people in rural communities, in cities and suburbs in unison, together, saying no one is going to silence anyone's voices here, not in Michigan, because we're going to have each other's backs. And that momentum was really critical, not only in in, in turning people out to the election, but for making sure that the results of the election were not subverted by the highest office in the land. And so that's actually the, the fight that continues. And I think if anything, people saw the headlines of you know, white nationalists showing up to our state capital as a precursor to January 6th. They saw all of those things there. What you often don't see, though, is that that was the losing side in 2020. It may have gotten a lot of media coverage blanketed internationally, but who won in 2020 and is winning now is multiracial working class organizing that's fighting not for any party or for any candidate, but is fighting for the for dignity in our communities. I think that's a really, really important thing for folks to understand going into 2022, 2024 and beyond. So um, I really like the idea of winning now, and I want to put a sort of a a marker on that because I want to get back to that. But I want to bring in Kamau really quickly. You are an on-the-ground organizer. I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into organizing, sort of your origin story, how you got into it. And what that sort of mutual aid in the age of COVID ahead of the 2020 election looked like from your vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. So this is funny only because so I actually started at We The People a little bit like in the midst of um, post-election. So late November. Um, So I didn't get to see a, a lot of the work until like the tail end in the contested election work to speak to kind of how I got into organizing more specifically. So I actually have a background in political science, urban studies. That's kind of where I was largely in college. I was very much in the foundation nonprofit sphere of things. That was kind of where I was headed in terms of my direction. And I spent some time as a precinct delegate here um, in Detroit. Um, So precinct delegates being kind of a role that most folk don't really know exist. But as an elected, you know, role, I, I, you know, spent four years kind of like doing, you know, voter registration, going to community meetings kind of in District 1, uh, which is kind of in Detroit to give some context. That's about Detroit, um, some parts of Detroit in the east side, some middle-class communities, some struggling communities as well of Detroit, and then also Gross Point, which is an adjacent, like, incredibly wealthy suburb. Um, so it's kind of this really gerrymandered, like, district. But and that's very white. Yeah. Very, yeah, okay. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> so 
largely kind of my background was kind of in, you know, that work and also to working on campaigns that were very transactional or, you know, in that district, you know, I worked on a state rep kind of campaign that was in that district. And I was like the only person sent to the struggling community <laughs> um, very explicitly because I'm a black male. I think many of my experiences in election work were very negative or just kind of like not fueling um, kind of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be. Um, so of course, like moving to 2020, kind of being in the midst of the election, I was kind of in a space of wanting to talk about everything that was going on. I had, you know, kind of done a book club with friends. We had kind of been engaging in kind of the conversation about, around like one kind of the distress that was happening at a national level, the pandemic, um, and also to like, you know, feasible wins and things that were like possible with this election. I know last year, um, for some of us, it wasn't like the most amazing outcome, you know, going out and, you know, voting for Joe Biden, but I think in itself, the opportunity to kind of like get a win and to kind of move back into, you know, a, a better direction was pretty impactful. So that's kind of how I got into even seeing We the People on my radar. Um, and of course, you know, kind of applying, enjoying, but I can't speak to a ton of like the contested election work. What I can speak to is no, but yeah, your viewpoint. I mean, if you're out in a community and you're 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 talking to people, and this is still you know, Michigan say purple state, but on the map it looks red, right? Because of 2016, yeah. and there is. I was panicked. <laughs> I, I hit it. I think fairly well. But I was like, what did it look like as you talked to people on the ground ahead of that 2020 election? Yeah. So, no, a lot of it, I mean, from my perspective, was a lot of it was a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. I, I kind of said it before. Last year was like one of two elections where um, of recent where we had like a large conversation around, you know, what do we need in terms of the voting system? Do we need ranked choice voting? Do we need other options? Like, is this even the most... I guess you could say effective way of going about elections. So a lot of conversations that, you know, I had with one folk my age, I'm 23 to give some perspective, um, but also too with older voters who were more on the fence or more like people come around, they say the same thing and they come every year, they say this with a lot of jadedness, a lot of cynic, mm -hmm. uh, cynicism. So I think last year was super interesting to be talking to people just because of kind of, you know, we had kind of spent four years definitely in a very anti-political space, very like, like deflated space. So like getting folk to that point of like, well, it's important to register. Let's get out to vote. Like it's more accessible now. All that information, that was like a big piece of kind of last year um, in talking to folk. I would love to ask uh, Art the specific question that we sort of started the, the beginning of the podcast with, which was, you know, how do we necessarily translate to folks nationally the importance of your state legislature and getting involved. And similarly, I would love to throw that to Kamau from that angle, because you are on the younger end, even though for field organizing, I, I definitely started when I was like a teenager, you know, are, are young folks really energized in realizing the value of these state elections? And maybe is it even more important to them? So I really would love to hear both of you speak to that. No, I, I super appreciate the question. Look, I think, I think, I think for me, just a kind of a quick, I'll give a, a a quick story about why I think this is this is really critical on how it impacts our people, not just kind of broader broader um, national context. I think is is really important. So, you know, I I was previously I, I was the I was working at, um, nationally. I was the national training director for an organization called the Center for Popular Democracy. Um, 
And on January 21st, 2016, I was sitting in my office. I was living in Boston at the time. I grew up in Flint. That's home for me. Um, but I had moved away. Um, and I was sitting in my office in Boston. And I got a call from my friend, Wani, um, who I'd grown up with. And she called me after she left the house of an undocumented family on the east side of the city of Flint. And she said they just found out about the water crisis because President Obama declared a state of emergency this week. They tried to go get water from an official distribution center that had been set up, but they were turned away because they didn't have ID. Undocumented people had that revoked um, in our state in, in 2008. They tried to go to the grocery store in their neighborhood had been raided by ICE two weeks prior. It would been a week after Christmas, so they're afraid to go buy water. And they had an 11 month old. The mother had been uh, drinking water and, and breastfeeding um, and their kid was sick and the weight of it was just hitting them. And so I'm sitting in Boston and Wani calls me um, and her voice is shaking and is like, I, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And for me, this was the same neighborhood that my family had moved to as migrant workers in the 1940s and 50s as a beacon of hope because there were union jobs, the auto factories are hiring, and it was a hopeful place for my family when they moved there then. Now, here was a family not dissimilar from my own that wasn't looking for union wages. They were looking for clean water and there weren't plausible places to get it. And so, you know, I called my boss at the time and said, this can be okay or not. I need to be home. And I took a standby flight that night and we ended up doing some work for several months, um, building an organization called Flint Rising that's now led by an incredibly powerful organizer named Nair Sharif um, in, in, in Flint. And I think for me, what was very, very apparent is what we were facing was a crisis of power. And so many times when we're facing crises of power, the levers in which we need to build are at the state and local level. And that's actually where we need to be fighting for the soul of our communities, the soul of our state, if we want to fight for the soul of this country. Because the fact of the matter is that for me, as, as an organizer, as someone who grew up a working class kid in Flint, it was very, very clear to me that for too long, what we were doing is we were treating places like Michigan that were swing states or important states in elections, we were treating people in those states as if they were bodies or numbers or data points in the voter file, not as if they were human beings and leaders and agents. And the consequences of not building enough power are not a lost election or two or the person who we don't, who we don't really like ends up in all. Like, the consequences were that my family and community were poisoned. Like that they, the, the water in our community you could not drink and they were denied dignity. And the thing is, is many of our communities, it's not just Flint and it's not just water. And for me, it then became incumbent. I think, at, you know, someone who had been working, uh, you know, at the national level um, in the, in the uh, organizing and social movement space, it became critical that like the, the fights that we have to fight in this country are at the state level. It's where many of these decisions are made. It's where power ends up, uh, ends up playing out. It's something that the right has deeply invested in for a number of years, which is why we have so many of the challenges that we do now with things like gerrymandering, attacks on voter rights, all of these things that are happening at the state level. And unless we are thoughtful about building legitimate, real, long-term organizing infrastructure in our communities, we will lose in the end. Because it actually can't just be about moments of national mobilization every two or four years around an election. It has to be about our communities making claims on how do we make sure that we're able to get dignity and we're able to aspire 
to the type of communities and states and country that we deserve, including the multiracial democracy that we've yet to realize in this country, that we have a lot of work to do to actually achieve. And that only happens if we're doing the organizing work, if we're building relationships with people, and if we're unlocking people's agency and their collective agency to say, in a democracy, we get to choose. But we need to choose in the ways that shape our communities and shape our states And that in total is how we fight for the soul of this country. I deeply believe that. And so for us, the work in Michigan is incredibly important because it is how we're fighting for the soul of our of our state and fighting for dignity, but also because there are things that are incredibly important and acute at the state level. Michigan is one of the most segregated places in the United States. Eight Mile, which a lot of people know because of an Eminem movie, right? Eight Mile is the starkest racial divide in the United States. And when we have a state that is roughly 80% white, our largest city is 90 plus percent people of color, nearly 80% black. And combined with that, we've had multi-generational economic devastation in Detroit and Flint, where I grew up, but also in the upper peninsula, huge rural swaths of the state. We become fertile ground for divide and conquer politics that lead to things like we saw in 2016. And so if we truly want to be combating that and fighting that ugly politic, that is kind of plays out as white nationalist authoritarianism that is still a very dangerous risk in this country. The way that we combat that is by doing the hard work on the ground of building relationships and fighting in our communities and in states. I deeply, deeply believe that. Wow. Did that answer your question, Kara? <laughs> I mean, I feel like I'm at church. I'm like, yeah, Seriously. yes. You know? <laughs> Gotta leave that dramatic pregnant pause there just to like let that sink in. Yeah. Come on. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess I guess you're up. <laughs> See, the crazy part is I, I mean, you kind of covered like most of it. I mean, I don't really have much to add. It was like really robust. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. So Kara's really, it, it, she's really like one of her big focuses in her work is in the youth vote. And so she was asking you, um, and that's, that's a good question. And I'll just sort of layer on top of that is that, is that, you know, there's, there's over half a million new voters last year in Michigan in sort of political science, conventional wisdom, it takes a voter three elections to be locked in as a regular, reliable voter. So these are presumably, maybe they voted before, but presumably we got over half a million new voters that don't have that history. You don't have the draw of a presidential election. They're probably disproportionately young. And I don't think I'm out too far on the ledge to, to just assume that they were probably younger people we have this election coming up next year, critically important. Are they going to turn out again? This really kind of goes back to kind of what Art was saying. Like a lot of this is a product of the work that we put in and start putting in now. Um, so of course, like we all know, like when we're, you know, kind of talking to voters, we're like mapping out how we want to talk to voters who we want to talk to. Um, we're very explicit about like what years they voted in, when they voted, like what their DIM score might be or like some of those other kind of forms of data that we have. A big component of that is like updating the data and making sure that that data is good. So that means like actually talking to folk. So part of this is like starting now and of course like building base. So even more specifically for an org like us, we might be building base in different municipalities in Michigan. So of course we're kind of scattered across uh, Michigan. We were in Detroit, Southeast kind of Michigan. We're also in 
West, Northern Michigan. And a lot of that means like getting young folks to engage in organizing spaces and building the leadership of young people. So when I think about this, I think of, you know, we're one of many grassroots organizations that are in Michigan that are kind of shepherding like a lot of this work. And a lot of them are taking up younger folk, folk in their 20s, folk in their early 20s, um, youth vol- like youth volunteers or youth organizers. And so a lot, a large component of this work is building that leadership and allowing them to do that recruitment and bringing other young folk in and building their leadership as well. One kind of big component we always talk about is like the, the ladder of leadership and being able to kind of build that over time. So a, a lot of that, you know, started, you know, last year and the years before, but that continues like this year into next year in terms of like, how can we engage those folk who are pissed off? Like they're, they're sick of this or sick of that. Um, they're looking for that space to be in. I've been that person. And of course now, I'm an organizer, so I think it's very possible. I think I'm a living testament to that. And, and that's really, I would say, a lot of that is the relationships that, that you're, we're building and how we're building those. Yeah, I mean, I would want to, we've talked a, a bit on this show in the past, um, specifically regarding the the uprisings of last summer um, and the George Floyd protests, that, you know, there was all this conversations about how this was going to affect the election negatively. And I've definitely, um, for our side, and I've definitely argued that I believe that young people and specifically people of color grew even more energized and more, and I believe that there's some data to, to back that up. And so I'm wondering, if in some paradoxical way you're seeing that folks are getting more engaged because of this anger that that a Biden presidency hasn't tempered. Yeah, I can tap in on that and then I'll kick it to you, Kamal, on, on, on this question. Look, I think that's certainly what we saw in 2020 in very real and very clear ways. We had, you know, folks that were doing incredible work, um, like street protests every single day for over a hundred days straight in the city of Detroit. And when it came time to protecting, protecting the results of, of the election, the set of folks that banded together were not just kind of like democratic party folks who dug in there. It was folks that, that were skeptical that elections were, should even be a part of the way in which we're creating change. Folks who were like, we need to be in the streets. I need to be, need to be, need to be dug in there. Um, Actually being able to bridge to, to build a wide span, a popular front that said, look, we're not going to let anybody's voices be taken away. And I think for me, what, what we saw was a lot of people energized, a lot of people exposed to what are the real threats that we're facing um, in some of this work. And I think we're going to see in Michigan even more of this when right now the leading contender on the Republican side is James Craig, who's the former police chief in the city of Detroit, that we witnessed, we were at many of these of these actions led by organizations like Michigan Liberation and Detroit Will Breathe as police beat the shit out of us. Excuse me, but as, as police like went, went and like absolutely the uh, uh, complete brutality that we saw in a moment of incredible democracy, of people saying something is fundamentally broken. We demand that this is shifting, participating in democracy and in, in, in as, as, as pure and robust a way as you can, saying something is not right and getting face down and, and often cases beaten um, by, by police. And so now when we have that, a person who's you know, now become this darling uh, of, the, of, the, of the right and is kind of a favorite guest on Tucker Carlson and see, seeing some of that, it is very clear to us who were in the streets – 
making sure that we were demanding justice and and defense of black lives in in places like Detroit, seeing then what someone is spouting who 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 is the leading contender for governor from the Republican Party. And that that I think is 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 incredibly important for us understanding that what what we're up against and what I've seen is 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 young people um, that we organize broadly incredibly engaged in that and we're also preventing I'm learning a ton from Kamau and his cohorts on our on our team the kind of Gen Z crew um, that kind of are constantly you know making me feel old uh, but like you know all of the ways that like creativity and brilliance whether it's how are we engaging. How are we engaging uh, folks in culture more deeply? How are we engaging artists more deeply? You know, I mean, this this week uh, under the mastermind of, of Kamau, we have a, a, a really important local election coming up in Detroit. If you care about voting rights, this is one of the most important elections in the country when it comes to voting rights. It's coming up in Detroit right now. And we have a, a techno and texting event coming up on on Friday, um, because Kamau, uh, who, you know, is also a, a really talented musician was like, we need to live into this city's history as like the birth of techno music. And so we're doing techno and texting, uh, with folks to make sure folks know, Hey, we got to get out there and vote, uh, over these, these next several weeks. And we can right now because of early voting, but come on, kick it over to you, you know, especially on like this moment right now in the most local way around the Detroit election, you know, there's just, there's incredible amount of energy and it's incredibly important right now. Yeah, no, I, I think like there's a lot of like I'm just gonna swear. I'm sorry. <laughs> like really good stuff that we can of- we can swear on this oh, show. Okay, cool. There was, I mean, there's a lot of good shit in that, and like a lot of it definitely resonates with like you can definitely say significantly shit. where Detroit is and where young folk in Detroit are. So we've talked about this before. Like Detroit is historically um, a largely black city. It's now down to about 80%, but it's largely multiracial city. Um, Part of what we're experiencing right now is we're experiencing a reality where young folk can no longer afford to live in Detroit. So I think that's been a big piece of sentiments that have gone into, one, this election so far, but also to the conversations around this election. And our primary, just in August, we had this revolutionary proposal that was on the ballot that was going to make water more affordable, housing more affordable. It was going to address all of these issues that folk were concerned about, specifically folk of color in Detroit and working class folk. And that was built by organizers, um, by policy writers, by some folk who are running for office, like to be the proposed charter for the city of Detroit. That charter, of course, did not win in the election, largely because of corporate dollars from utility corporations and other big spenders like putting money into fighting this through advertisements and um kind of negative like narrative and a large component of the conversation um from young folk was around like wanting to educate around like what proposal p is like what it meant what it would mean for detroit and i think for so many of us we're fighting to live in the city that our parents grew up in our, we all come from the background if you're black in detroit you largely come from the background of your parents worked for the plant they worked for the big three um, and that's kind of our history. That's our legacy in the city. And so for us to be fighting to live here, fighting to stay here, there's a lot of people that are already kind of like wanting to be um, mobilized or like wanting to be in action. And I think specifically last year when folk, of course, took to the streets and took to action, um, that was a big component of it. it. I mean, of course, there was the Black Lives Matter piece and just kind of the war on uh, Black lives. But also so much of that was build up of years and years, decades and decades of kind of racial um, politics and racial kind of, as you could say, 
inequity here in Detroit. So I think there, there, there is a very big opportunity like with this election um, in terms of like the fight for Detroit and the fight for Detroit where we can have participatory democracy. We can have um, folk on city council or folk in the clerk office that are on our side and looking to make things more accessible, looking um, to protect our right to stay in the city and then beyond even next year for you know a gubernatorial race where we can make that same fight. I think th- those are big pieces where young folk are definitely getting engaged with elections and kind of what their role um, and movement work is. So I, I, I want to ask a question about 2022, but I'm kind of blown away with the idea of Detroit not being affordable anymore because the popular perception of Detroit and I, you know, I'm guilty of it is that it is still a place where, housing is incredibly inexpensive and that it didn't have the sort of urban renewal that other major cities did that drove up those prices. Is Detroit truly becoming unaffordable to many residents now? I I think, I think one of the things that, that, that you're seeing, and this is important in thinking kind of more broadly of like what, what, what we see happening in, in a number of, of communities, you know, we have, a billionaire um, whose whose wealth increased incredibly during the pandemic in Detroit, Dan Gilbert, who who leads um, Quicken Loans and a, and a series of companies there, who a number of years ago kind of bought up a significant chunk of downtown. Um, and what what we've what what we've seen is kind of some of these corridors downtown to Midtown, Corktown, a number of things that have begun rapidly gentrifying. There's massive, massive discrepancies um, and inequities between the neighborhoods and between some of these, you know, the, the communities that have that have begun to get invested. And we're seeing uh, a boom in development in Detroit and a real, real need. Um, for that to include uh, affordable housing. Detroit for a long time, right, was the city that had the densest the densest home ownership anywhere in the country. That has largely been eradicated. Detroit is now a majority renter city. Um, the, the foreclosure crisis um, and in particular tax foreclosures wiped out generations, especially for black homeowners, but also of, you know, of, of, of other communities of color and working class folks who had owned homes for generations. And we're seeing that that play out um, and happen in very clear ways. And so what we're seeing, too, that I think is really important is we're starting to see young people that are of movement beginning to run for office. So, you know, for, we believe that organizations, community organizing groups need to have every tool in the tool belt. We also have a super PAC um, and our super PAC right now is working on behalf of some really important candidates, like folks like, Gabriela Santiago Romero, who is actually full transparency. She just left our team as our policy director. She's been helping lead some of that work. Who's running for city council. Denzel McCampbell, who's running for city clerk as a movement candidate and one of the most critical voting rights, um, voting rights fights um, in, in the country right now at a local level. And I think it's coming from that. Gabby decided to run for office after seeing a bunch of, uh, you know, a, a Southwest Detroit where she's at begin to become unaffordable for many folks in her family. And we're seeing the historic Latino neighborhood where a lot of folks are now leaving and moving downriver to some of the working class suburbs because increasingly they're getting pushed out of the neighborhoods that they've, that they've lived in for now generations. We are talking to Art Reyes and Kamal Clark of We The People Michigan. I hope you're being properly inspired by them because we're going to be asking you to donate money to their organization for the amazing work that they are doing. Kamal, I had a question for you as you talk to people. Um, it seems that there are two real 
real possibilities for next year. A lot of it depending on what the independent redistricting council does and what the lines look like. There is a real possibility that the Republicans have a trifecta, and there's a real possibility that Democrats end up with a trifecta, that is the governorship and both chambers of the legislature. Now, for those of us who are politically engaged, we don't need to look far to see why that is important, right? We just have to look at Texas, where abortion has been essentially made illegal and voting rights have been made difficult in Arizona, Georgia, uh, Florida, Texas as well. We we can see that, but we are those who are really paying attention and engaged. Like most people are not because they're just struggling to live life. As you talk to people, you know, in your community, is there an understanding of what those stakes are between those two very real possibilities? So I'm going to give you a yes and no. And, and partially it's because it's circumstantial based on who you're talking to. But what I will say is in terms of like next year and kind of the impact of next year's election, a large piece for folk who are not engaged or not like aware right now is just that they haven't been made aware. Um, a lot of it is just demystifying what those roles are in terms of who does what, why it's important, like what are the win numbers, like people need to know those things. I think very often we kind of approach, um, we can approach things. They're just like, oh, they'll, they'll just know, they'll just assume, like we do have to demystify that. So one big component of that is like having, you know, ha- narrative, having um, people on the ground. Um, what I can say for folks who are politically engaged or more engaged, they're concerned. They're you know sitting at um, tables right now. We're having tables in the state of Michigan in regards to redistricting um, that folk are like engaging with and uh, advocating for Detroit, but also too for other um, sp- um, cities of color. So I think folk are definitely like in- engaged and interested. It's just broadly, more broadly, there's a lot of work that you have to do in terms of just demystifying like what the importance of that election is going to be and how it's going to impact us. So, yeah. Go ahead, Kara. I just wanted to, to highlight again, because we've been talking so much about the importance of, uh, I started off the show talking about how important organizations like yours and knowing the niche of the very specific inner, you know, culture of the cities and districts and the people that live there and how valuable that is. I, I, I wanted to highlight again, this techno and texting um, event and how brilliant I think that that is. Um, I know that when I worked for the Obama campaign for the election uh one of the things we learned is that if we like taught people to text before an event and made them text one person um they would be much more likely to show up and and text other folks and so i really want to know what early money means to you and uh, as an organization and and how it can be put to use because that's kind of the whole reason of this uh <laughs> of this uh for those who are listening on the podcast they are pointing to uh each other um but um it, it, you know i think that folks uh really get engaged like you know come september of an election year but i really want to know from you know you who are doing the work day in and day out what this is investment early, what difference does it make versus getting involved in, in, in September of 2022? Yeah, I appreciate that, Carrie. I think it's a really important question. Look, here, here, uh, just to use a little bit of an analogy, here's, here's what I would describe. Oftentimes, places like Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Florida, Ohio, right, these supposed swing states, what ends up happening um, is that People freak out late nationally and want to send a bunch of money. Um, oftentimes, it is very, very 
targeted, like saying like, we think these voters in this suburban district need to be, you know, persuaded to go this way or that way. And what ends up happening for me is, you know, a longstanding organizer who's, you know, done both, you know, led statewide and then, and then national work. What that is tantamount to is building sandcastles. Um, cycle after cycle after cycle. And sometimes they are big and beautiful and expensive, but they aren't ours. They're very easily washed away and they're not built on a strong foundation. That's what happens when it's late money that treats our people just as voters, right? Just as bodies and numbers and data points in the voter file. The difference between that and having well-resourced organizing organizations that are thinking not just about the election, but are thinking about power, are thinking about what does it mean for my community to have some stake, to actually make sure that we understand the election as one thing that we need to be doing and fighting on if we are to get dignity, just one part of that, means that we have more robust sets of leaders in our communities who have a real stake in it, who are not just like, oh, what, you know, the, the kind of the, the myth of the kind of like uneducated, apathetic voter, which I think does not exist in our communities. What, 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 what happens is that people begin to understand this as one part of what it means to make sure that like our neighborhoods are safe for real to make sure that there is clean water for real, to make sure that, you know, there aren't more families getting separated in the state simply because undocumented people haven't had driver's license since 2008, right? All of these, these issues are incredibly important and early resources mean that organizations can do the hard work of building again, not with bodies and numbers, but with leaders, with agents, with people who have a stake in these fights in their communities to build for the long haul. And I think that's incredibly important. And the one example that I'll give of something that's happening right now that I think is remarkable, I think is really beautiful. So, you know, I mentioned the issue earlier about driver's license being taken away um, from, um, from, from folks in Michigan, from undocumented people in Michigan. Michigan has had the second highest rate of family separations, of arrests and deportations of anywhere in the country. We're a border state. Um, undocumented people had our IDs taken away. We are also the state that has the fifth most agriculture workers in the country. We're the end of the migrant trail um, for folks who come up from Texas. That's how my family came up um, in the 1940s and 50s. And so what, what, what you see happening is a real uh, kind of attack on, on families that's happening through this. And what we've seen, and this was, again, for us, we say we start with people, not issues. Back in 2018, we did an organizing workshop um, that we do all across the state. We did one in, in, in Kalamazoo County, where an incredible organizer named Nellie, um, who's on our team, pulled together a team of largely undocumented people who said, you know what, we want to end ice holds in Kalamazoo County. This is a decision that the local sheriff can make. So that way, our county, our county jail isn't holding people and then turning them over to ice, resulting in them being separated from their families. And they fought for nine months and they won on that. Now that has grown into a statewide campaign right now to push the state legislature to get um, to, to get access to driver's license for all in the state, regardless of immigration status. They convinced key Republican allies to be in this fight, like the Farm Bureau, um, so the uh, some local chambers of commerce, and have got enough momentum that they're fracturing 
the 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 Republican caucus in the state legislature who are getting pushed by farmers, by the Farm Bureau, by local businesses saying, look, this is a real this is a real issue. They're saying we're not we, we want to be centered as human beings who deserve the right to be able to get in the car and go to the lake like everybody else in the community or get in the car and take our kids to, to, to school or to the doctor's office. And so this fight right now for them. For the folks who are leading in this campaign, they know exactly what members of the state legislature need to be targeted. They know exactly what parts of the state we need to be building more momentum and power. And they know what votes need to get turned out in order to shift that because they have skin in the game and they've been fighting on it for a long time to make sure that they get it. That is remarkably different than late money that says, hey, did you, you should go out and vote like next week. It's saying this is part of our community's building power for ourselves to make the changes that we need to make to have dignity in this place. That's the difference between a check coming in September of an election year or coming the year before that roots in organizing versus just mobilizing voters. Kamal, we have time for one more question. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw this to you. Um, you're an organizer with We the People Michigan. Somebody donates to these, this organization. It's funding people like you. Can you give us a sense of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and how that's furthering both this uh, mission on policy and also the electoral mission in Detroit and next year statewide? Yeah, that's a great question. Not to joke, but for the next three days, I'm off. So I'm not doing much. But <laughs> in general, so for, for me, I'm Southeast Michigan organizer for We the People, which means I'm specifically in three counties, Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb County. Wayne County being the county that holds Detroit. Uh, my work most immediately right now is with election work, but also too um, with cultural um, and creative organizers and other folks that are doing art, music here. So where my work goes is in one building kind of what election um, actions will look like for us as an organization. So to give some context, we're engaging in our first kind of endorsement process in the city of Detroit, um, our first coalition that we're in with grassroots organizations that are specifically Detroit focused. Um, we're engaging in PAC work that we um, weren't able to engage in before. And so a large component of my work and even like with art and with other folk on the team is testing out what works and figuring out what works and what people we need to be engaging with, what constituency we need to be building. So a lot of this is like really creating the capacity that we're going to need one for next year, but also to for elections following that. So what that looks like is that looks like one being in the field. So creating our field team of, you know, folks that are going to go on doors, folks that are going to text, um, folks that are going to talk to voters um, during hiring for, you know, if we need, you know, staffing to do, take up that work, um, building volunteers, building relationships with volunteers. So a big component of that is that we use is, you know, doing one-on-one, one-to-ones with volunteers, getting to know what brought them to this work, you know, what they're looking to do in this work and building that long-term power so that when we re-engage with election work, as one component of like our movement work, we're able to, you know, call those same folk and say, Hey, we're going to be doing this. Like, can I count on you? And also to like those folk wanting to engage and wanting to take up leadership, wanting to talk to folk that they went out and door knocked in support of, of like, Oh, are they going to have a community meeting? Where do I need to be? And so a large component of my work um, most immediately is building that, helping build that. And, and it's very similar for other organizers that and beyond. That is fantastic. We're uh, pretty much 
out of time, but you know what, Art, I'm going to give you a chance to tell people how they can help you uh, accomplish your mission, your URL, opportunity to donate, volunteer. What, what do you have for people to do? Yes, thank you for that. So folks uh, who want to who wanna contribute to the organization or learn more about the organization uh, can go over uh, to wethepeoplemi.org. You can also follow um, us on Twitter. So we the people underscore MI, we the people of Michigan on there. And we'll also make sure to drop links um, for folks on our website. You can donate to our 501c3 for folks that want to contribute to the political work. We'll drop some links uh, on our on our Twitter around our C4 um, and around the space where folks can also donate to our PAC. Um, so very, very excited to, to be on and really, really grateful. And the other thing just to mention is, just a lot of love for for Daily Coast. You all have have been incredibly supportive and in supporting grassroots organizations, you know, across the country and supporting us for this last year, especially as we engage in an incredibly difficult um, and fortunately victorious fight to protect the results of the election uh, in Michigan in, in, in 2020. So, just a lot of love to to all the folks who are who are who are listening and follow you and who are on the email list because you all have have contributed in really really important ways to our work so far. Thank you so much. We're going to share those links uh, as well with our audience and our email list and and all our different. Uh, outlets as well thank you so much if it was if i had it if it was if i was a benevolent dictator of the world i would have the daily coast community donate exclusively to grassroots organizations like yours because that's the real meat of what politics happens and it's real and it's lasting and it's grassroots and it's amazing and so incredible admiration and love for what you guys are doing it's not easy work so thank you for everything you do and thanks so much for joining us today yeah gratitude thank you guys thank you so much for having us so Kara, I wish we had a little bit of time to just go, wow, because wow. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> These people are unbelievable. Un- yeah. Just incredible, amazing. So much love and admiration for, truly for everything that they do. If I have no other purpose in life than to shine a spotlight on the work that they're doing, my life has been well spent. So Kara, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being co-host. It's been my uh, pleasure. Last, last minute. Uh, <laughs> thanks for everything you do. You're amazing. Thanks to Walter Einenkel for producing. Thanks to Kamau and Art Reyes for joining us. We the people, MI for Michigan. We the people, MI.org. We're going to drop links in all the appropriate places. Please, please, please donate to them and organizations like them because, and do it now. And even do it recurring. Like, like even if it's like $5, $10 a month, do that incredibly helpful for the work that they do and it will pay huge dividends not just at the state level but also when it comes to both the congress the senate things like abortion rights and uh in the president race in 2024 this is all of a piece thank you so much for joining us see you all next week thank you for listening if you're enjoying the show give us a rating wherever you get your podcast you can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on twitter at daily coast see you next week